Now this morning we are in uh, Mark chapter 14 and uh, you might have noticed as Ruth was reading that passage, uh, this is really a story that is set at the height of the action in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, there is a major plot afoot for Jesus' life. Uh, really, it's, it's, it's sort of like terrorist activity. And we've been reminded of that again this week uh, through the events in Mumbai. That's essentially what you've got going on in the Gospels here. People plotting to kill Jesus as an innocent man, uh, really for largely political means. So there is all this controversy swirling around Jesus. Uh, the Jewish authorities are trying to arrest him. At the end of this passage, you see this uh, mention of Judas, who was eventually going to betray Jesus, and you might have picked up the fact that Mark uses in this chapter his sandwich technique. Do you remember when we talked about the sandwich technique? Uh, the way that Mark loves to put one story inside another story. And in this case, what he's doing is he's having the story about the betrayal, about the arrest, about the plot to kill Jesus around the edges, and then in between he's got this beautiful story of a woman who models exactly the opposite spirit a spirit of worship and a spirit of love and adoration towards Jesus. And uh, it's not insignificant, by the way, that you've got here, either end of this story, you've got a whole bunch of blokes running around without a clue who have completely lost the plot. And in the middle, the story of a woman who gets it exactly right. That wouldn't have been lost on first century ears either. So here is this picture. And in verse 3, it's set, we find, in the home of Simon the leper. So already there's a massive degree of controversy here. This would really be like a respectable Christian today hanging out, having dinner in the home of a prostitute. It's probably the closest example you're going to get. It just cuts across social taboos. It cuts across religious taboos, but Jesus doesn't really care. He's there. He's having dinner uh, at Simon's house. Uh, he's reclining after dinner. They've had a good meal, filled themselves up, and they're sitting around talking away. And then this woman enters the scene. Uh, in Mark's Gospel, you don't find her name. She's just known as a woman. But if you read the parallel account in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, you find out a few details that we don't have here. We find out that this woman was Mary. Uh, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, not Mary Magdalene either. This is another Mary. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Mary, the sister of Martha. Uh, Mary, who was a friend of Jesus. Mary of Bethany. And uh, she comes here, and, and she's probably already been a dinner guest at this party, I would imagine. But she comes at the end of the evening, and she brings to Jesus this alabaster jar of perfume. Uh, an alabaster jar was an ancient uh, pot-like, long, skinny jar thing that you would keep expensive perfume or any kind of substance in, really. Uh, and she comes to Jesus with this, and her intention is to anoint him with this perfume. Uh, that has huge symbolic meaning in the ancient world. You would anoint people who were uh, priests. You would anoint people who were kings. You would anoint VIPs. It was a mark of how important they were. It was a mark of royalty. It was a mark of important religious status. And Mary comes with this jar and her plan is to anoint Jesus. And, and what she couldn't have even foreseen is what Jesus mentions at the end of this passage, that she in fact is anointing him in a sense for burial. Uh, she wouldn't have known that that's what's going on, but this is the deepest significance that Jesus draws out, that this is part of foreshadowing his own death and his own burial. Now, you've got to understand something about this perfume. All right? This is not, listen up guys, this is not the kind of perfume that you're going to buy your grandma for Christmas. All right? This is not that, it's not that life pharmacy perfume in the cellophane, the five pack that you buy because it's cheap and it looks nice. It's not that stuff. 
All right. This is, in fact, it's not even this. I brought along a, a little sample here today of um, some of my wife's perfume. I, I said to Anna yesterday, um, could, could, you, could I take along some, some of the perfume that I've bought you over the years? And I found out that that didn't exist. Um, <laughs> so uh, I had to bring along some perfume that she's bought herself over the years. But this is what we've got here is a little bit of Coco uh, Mademoiselle Chanel Paris here. It's, uh, I've got no idea what it's like, actually, but maybe if we just spray. She said I could spray once, really, each service. <laughs> All right, yeah, it's, not, it's not too bad. It's pretty good stuff. In fact, I think Debbie might have even sprayed some of your bulletins this morning. So there's a little bit of fragrance there just to kind of engage the senses here with what we're talking about. Now, this is, this is nice stuff, right? Uh, but it's, we're not talking about this either, okay? This is, this is decent. But the kind of perfume that Mary's got is something different again. Uh, the, the realm of perfume that we're talking about is, uh, I've, I've went on the net this week, I'm not going to pretend I knew anything about this, but there is a perfume called Clive Christian Number no. 1. Has anyone owned this stuff? Clive Christian Number no. 1. It is the most expensive over-the-counter perfume that you can buy. And I uh, searched on Amazon and it, on Friday it was priced at New Zealand $4,915 a bottle, okay? That's one ounce. One ounce, okay? So. If you're looking for a pretty uh, reasonably priced Christmas present for your nearest and dearest, uh, I can recommend Clive Christian number one. It's pretty good. 30 mils, uh, 4,915 bucks right there. Most expensive over-the-counter perfume that you can find. So ladies, just give, give your man a nudge there. Uh, Clive Christian number one. Put it on the Christmas list. Now, I, I did a few calculations here because what, what you've got to remember is that the alabaster jar that this woman Mary has is not just 30 mils worth, right? She's got this big jar going on, and scholars estimate that this could contain about 8.5 ounces, or about 250 mil. So, how much, Clive Christian, are you going to need to fill the alabaster jar? Quite a bit. Hey, I figured this out. You would need uh, enough, well, if you bought 240 mil worth of Clive Christian, it is going to add you up to about $41,777. Okay, so that you're going to need to buy about nine bottles of the stuff. You need 8.5 ounce, ounces to fill the alabaster jar. It's going to run you up to a total of 41,777. New Zealand, I'm doing this all in New Zealand dollars, right? So you've got an exact estimate of, of what you're looking at for Christmas. Uh, that's really what it's going to cost you. Now, that's probably about right because what we find here is that this perfume costs about 300 denarii. It's about a year's wages, $41,000. Well, that's, that's a little bit higher than the average New Zealand salary. It'd be a lot lower than, than some, higher than others. But that's probably pitched about right. So that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. An alabaster jar full of Clive Christian number no. one. Of course, it wasn't Clive Christian number no. one, but you get the idea. I'll tell you this, though, just for fun. I found this out, and it's got no relevance at all. But do you want to know the most expensive perfume ever made? This is brilliant. It's still Clive Christian number one, but what they did is they created a limited range of Clive Christian called Imperial Majesty. Uh, it costs more because they poured the perfume into a crystal bottle and they stuck a five-carat diamond into the 18-carat gold collar. The five bottles that were ever produced sold for New Zealand dollars 387,900 per bottle. Yes. Only three have ever been sold, you'll be pleased to know, so there's still two up for grabs. <laughs> so don't look past it. This Christmas, ladies, put it on your shopping list. Imperial Majesty, Clive Christian number one. Now, that's probably a little bit beyond what Mary had. 
But you've got to wonder what, what she was doing with this stuff, hey? I mean, this is not just over-the-counter perfume. Uh, we learned the detail that we have about it is it's made from pure nard, which um, I found out was an extract from a tree root in India. So this was imported stuff, uh, really expensive. Maybe she had gotten hold of this from, from a trader coming through town. Maybe she was saving it up for her husband. Uh, maybe she was going to sell it eventually. Uh, we don't know, but she's got this unbelievably high-end perfume, an entire jar full of this stuff. And she comes to Jesus with this perfume, and she proceeds to anoint him with it. Now, normally, when you anoint someone with oil or perfume, what you do is you take the lid off, and you dip your finger in, or you pour a little bit on your finger, and you just dab it on their forehead, or you maybe just, just wipe it on their face somehow. But Mary breaks the alabaster jar. So she breaks the neck of this flask and she holds it above Jesus' head and pours the whole thing out. 41,777 New Zealand dollars poured out over Jesus' head. And you can imagine this stuff just running over his uh, hair, down his face. I mean, you're talking almost quarter of a liter of perfume, just poured out, running down his stringy beard, down his, his, his cloak or his, his tunic, and onto his feet. In John, interestingly, we're told that Mary anoints Jesus' feet with oil. And in Mark, we're told that she anoints his head. And sometimes people have looked at that and said, oh, there you go, the Bible's full of errors, it's a contradiction. I don't think there's any contradiction there at all. You can imagine Mary pouring this perfume over Jesus' head. Half a quarter of a liter of perfume is going to drip all the way down to his feet. It covers his feet. And then here is Mary kneeling down in a posture of humility and a posture of submission, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. I think you could look right through the Scriptures and probably not find a more beautiful picture of worship than that. You know, we can talk about worship, we can make statements about it, and we can theologize about what worship is, but you just see it here, don't you? Just raw, pure worship. And it's, it really is worth this morning, uh, as we head into communion, just taking a few minutes to let that picture sit with you. As a picture of what real worship looks like. And, and, and you ask yourself, what is not here? <clears throat> What's not in this story? You can't see any instruments, all right? Not even a guitar amp in the corner. No worship leader as far as I know. Sorry, Grant. Uh, it wasn't a worship leader here. Um, no data projectors. <clears throat> no particularly fancy building. No script. No liturgy. No formula. No rules. This is just raw. This is just vulnerable humanity. This is spontaneous. It's unexpected. It's probably a bit uncomfortable, I would imagine, for those watching it. It's awkward. It's unplanned. But this is human brokenness. This is human humility at its truest and its purest and its richest. This pouring out of perfume upon Jesus, symbolic of Mary pouring her own heart out, her own life just broken, her own spirit just absolutely poured out before her master. I don't know whether you've ever seen this. 
I was thinking, honestly, I was thinking of whether I'd ever seen anything uh, in worship that comes close to this. And I don't think I have. Maybe you have. I think it does happen. I don't think this is just confined to the history books. We may not have the human Jesus here anymore, but have you ever seen worship like this? Have you ever seen anybody, have you yourself ever had a moment that looked something like this, of just pure brokenness, just absolute vulnerability, when you just didn't care about anyone else looking at you. You just didn't care what people around you thought. You didn't care how stupid or how reckless or how irresponsible this act of worship might have seemed. You just poured your life out, or you saw someone around you just pouring themselves out. I can think of moments when there have been glimpses of this, Maybe at a, at a concert, maybe in a, at a gathering, maybe just times in my own personal journey of worship when, when I've approached this perhaps, but it's still, I look at this, I don't know about you, I look at this and it still seems just so foreign. It still feels like so distant. I struggle to really relate to this picture of worship. And if you stack it up next to your own experience of worship, how does it compare? Just sit with this picture for a moment, this picture of Mary. How does it stack up next to your own experience of worshiping God? What about as a congregation? How does it compare to our collective experience of worshiping God? How do these gatherings reflect in some way the spirit of this passage? Are we moving towards this kind of worship? Do you glimpse from time to time this kind of vulnerability, this kind of adoration, this depth of devotion? Sometimes you get a faint glimpse of it, I think. But a lot of the time it, it seems so distant. It seems so disconnected from our own everyday, regular experiences of worshiping God, which probably, if we're honest, seem reasonably dry, largely routine, and quite familiar. That's where we generally live. And it's okay to admit that. I think there's something in us that longs for this, isn't there? Even if you're not experiencing it now, isn't there something in your spirit that just looks at this and goes, man, I would love that. I would love that experience of worship. I would love to worship Jesus like that. But I find as I look at this picture that more often than not, I, I'm in the position of the other guests in this story. You look at how they respond, and it, it's got to be awkward for them, so give them some credit. But these guys, they, they look at what Mary's doing here, they're a bit freaked out, and they say, why this waste of perfume? That is the typical male response right there. Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Now, before you throw rocks at these guys, they've got a good point. I mean, $41,777, that's just a vague count, by the way, but uh, that's Clive Christian number one. You're just pouring this out on Jesus' head. I mean, seriously, think for a minute what that money could have achieved. Quite honestly, they've got a good point. This could have gone into real serious social justice work on behalf of the poor. This could really have helped Jesus' ministry. This could have reached a lot of people. This could have enabled people to eat for, for, for weeks, for a year. It's 300 denarii. It's a year's salary. And these guys look at this and they think, why on earth are you wasting this perfume, just pouring it out of the, in a couple of seconds, an entire year's salary down the gurgle. And that, I think, is how many of us, especially guys, but many of us, look at worship. We look at it, we look at this idea of people just spending unhurried time focusing on God, unhurried time in His presence, pouring out our heart in devotion and worship and adoration 
intimacy and proximity to him. And we say, that seems to me like a waste of time. Because we want to be doers, don't we? We want to be out there and we think this time could better be spent, frankly, going out there and sharing our faith. Why are we not out there evangelizing? Why are we not out there using the resources and the time that we've got building church buildings, starting humanitarian ministries, uh, reaching the lost, starting missions organizations? Let's go and let's do something. Why are we just standing around, sitting around, carving out time, giving, giving precious energy to this worship of God, simply being with Him? What's that achieving? What's that producing? And of course, the answer is nothing. It's no secret. By modern Western standards, worship is completely useless. It's absolutely useless. It does not produce anything. It does not achieve anything by our enlightenment standards. It is not industrious, and it's not productive. But look at how Jesus responds to these other dinner guests. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. Now, it has to be said, some people take this in, a, in the wrong direction, and they look at that, and they say, there you go, Jesus says we don't have to care about the poor. Well, that is the worst example of exegesis, because it takes this verse way out of the context of the rest of the Scriptures, the rest of the Gospels, where Jesus clearly has a heart for the poor. He clearly has a heart to move the kingdom forward. He clearly has a heart to proclaim the, this truth and do all of these things. But here, He is simply saying to them, don't spend all your time doing stuff for me and none of your time with me. Don't go out there and just spend so much time and energy focusing on doing stuff for me that you spend no time just being with me. At the heart of Christianity, at the heart of our experience of Christ is relationship, not productivity. Relationship and communion and connection with the resurrected Christ is the centerpiece of the faith that we have. Not going out there and serving in Jesus' name. That is a flow on from the relationship that we have been invited into. In our house, Saturday is housework day. So uh, yesterday, we had a few other things on yesterday, actually, but we still, between Friday evening and Saturday, uh, Anna and I, we, we did a bit of the housework. Actually, she did a lot more than me this weekend, I've got to admit. But, you know, there's vacuuming to be done, and uh, there's bathroom to be cleaned, and there's washing to, to go through, and dishwasher, and all this kind of stuff. And honestly, I, I don't really mind that stuff too much. I'm not just saying that. I mean, I seriously, I stick on the iPod, a bit of vacuuming. Uh, I'm good. You know, it's fine. I, I can do, I can handle that stuff, you know. And, and, and that's all fine. Uh, but I'll be honest with you. We, as we lay in bed last night, Anna said to me, I don't feel like you have emotionally connected with me over this past day. You know, we'd done various things, and we'd gotten the work done. But she said, I, I don't feel like you've been with me. You know, I don't feel like you've connected with me. And she was right. You know, I, I'd been on auto. I'd been doing stuff, getting what needed to be done, done. But I'd not really been engaging in relationship. And that's a problem because Anna's love language is quality time. Quality time. And it doesn't come all that naturally to me, to be honest. You know, I'd, I'd be out there doing stuff, and, you know, for me, a good conversation's a short conversation. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, honestly, I dropped the ball this weekend, you know. 
I don't want to make jokes about it. I dropped the ball. I, I was not there for her. And uh, that's the reality. It kind of illustrates what Jesus is trying to say. We can spend so much time and energy doing stuff for him and uh, trying to be a good Christian or serving in a church ministry, giving to projects, all of which are good things. And I don't want to take anything away from that, but we can sometimes do all that at the expense of actually spending quality time with the God whom we love. We can actually do stuff at the expense of investing in the relationship that we are honored and privileged to have with the living Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, I think we're especially prone to this. I think us guys, you know, there's a whole school of thought at the moment going around that says the church has got to serve men better. And I think that's true. I think there are things that we can be doing, you know, that we, we, we can be helping... Uh, well, we can be changing programs. We can be maybe not being so feminine in the way we do some things. But sometimes, guys, I think that can be an excuse for us not to be emotionally engaged. Sometimes we can hide behind a definition of masculinity that's all macho and manly as an excuse for being relationally disconnected from God. That's not masculinity, guys. That is pseudo-masculinity that our culture has told us that's what it means to be a man. That's not biblical manhood. It's not biblical masculinity. In the Scriptures, men and women are commanded to love the Lord their God with all their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength. And I wonder whether what our church needs is not to cater more for the needs of men, but more men who are committed to being passionate worshippers of Christ. More men who are prepared to model genuine worship to their wives and their families. And who are prepared not to leave their feelings at the door when they come in, but even to be emotional worshippers. We can get so scared of emotions, and I'm not talking about emotionalism, where our emotions just run riot. But worship is holistic, and it should engage our brains as well as our feelings. And I think, guys, sometimes we need to recover a more healthy and robust definition of biblical masculinity, which involves our passionate, adoring, devoted worship of God. I think a lot of us long for this, but few of us ever attain it. And I wonder if part of that is because we struggle to count the cost of this type of worship. You know, it's easy to glamorize this story. It's easy to romanticize it as a beautiful picture of genuine worship. But don't forget what this cost this woman. Don't forget the sacrifice that she made in order to really draw near to Jesus and perform this act of worship that has been remembered down through the generations. And friends, I think this passage reminds us, and if I can say this graciously, that genuine worship is costly. And in fact, I would say that if your worship is not costing you anything, it may not be genuine worship. Now that's not to say we're trying to earn our salvation or that we're doing good worship in order to earn brownie points with God, but worship comes at a cost. Shallow worship's easy. Superficial worship is easy. It's easy to stand and mouth the words of songs. It's easy to read a couple of Bible verses before turning out the light at night. It's easy to pray a quick prayer in the car on the way to work, but genuine worship is hard. Genuine worship is hard, and I wonder what the cost would be for you. If we were to really take Jesus seriously, believe that this picture of worship could be a model of our own lives, what would the cost be for you? I'm not suggesting that you'd run out and buy a bottle of expensive perfume and come and pour it on the stage. That would be silly. But is there a cost? Is there a cost that God's perhaps prompting you today to make? Maybe it's simply the cost of time. 
You know, we, we tend to be, in the middle classes, we tend to be time poor. We've got hectic jobs, family demands. We get tired, especially this time of year. We're, we're run down and we're weary. And perhaps the cost of worship is carving out a little bit of time in your daily schedule, in your weekly schedule, and perhaps it may cost a little bit of sleep. Perhaps it might cost uh, a little bit of self-time, a little bit of alone time. Perhaps there might be that time cost to you, but perhaps that is the step that's required to be taken this morning in order to really break through and experience this kind of worship. Maybe it is that cost of developing a lifestyle of worship, that you are spending unhurried time each day, focusing your heart and your mind on God, slowing, stopping, being still. When was the last time you did that? That's what's required if we're to be genuine worshippers. I wonder if the cost for you might be mental and emotional energy. You know, we, we come into church and we're tired and you've had a hectic week and the pressures of what is coming this week are bearing down on you and you're thinking even now about the shopping list, aren't you? I know, I can see into your minds. <laughs> Didn't realise I had that skill, did you? You're thinking about the Christmas list and how little Christmas shopping you've done and what's going to happen for lunch today and how hectic this week is going to be for you and it really is tough to engage genuinely in worship when we gather together as God's people. It is tough. And I think we are so trained and conditioned to think and act as consumers that we often come in and we evaluate the worship experience based on what we need, what we expect and what we want. And, and we think, well, if it's the right worship leader and if the songs are ones that I like and if the music's not too loud and if it doesn't go too long and if I don't have to stand up for too long, then maybe I'll worship. And I wonder how well those excuses are going to stand before the Lord when you finally meet him face to face. You say, well, God, I would have worshipped you, but you know, the music was a bit loud. <laughs> I think some of those things might fall away on that day. And I know it's not easy. I know it's easier to worship when there are all the songs that we love and uh, everything's going well and when we're already feeling close to God and you haven't had a massive blow up with your family on the way to church. You know, that never helps put you in the right frame of mind, does it? You arrive here and there's a million things on your mind and it's not easy. I know that. I, I don't find it easy all the time. But this may be the cost of actually decentering worship from ourselves and centering it on Christ. I wonder how many times we actually picture Jesus seated here in our midst as he was before Mary, desiring our worship. I wonder if that picture might help us to see Jesus sitting here in our midst and asking, uh, what about me? Have you given thought this morning to what I might be desiring, to what I might be expecting, to what Jesus himself might be asking for from you, the kind of worship that would please him, the kind of adoration that would be fitting for a king. Maybe it takes you engaging your heart and your mind and choosing to worship even when it's hard. You know, King David, when he was uh, buying a piece of land to make a sacrifice, build an altar to God, he insisted on paying for the purchase of the land. The guy who owned it offered it to him for free. He said, look, this is fantastic. You have it. David said no. And he said, his words were these. He said, I will not bring a sacrifice to the Lord that costs me nothing. And I wonder if that could be a reflection of our hearts, that we wouldn't allow ourselves to bring a sacrifice to the Lord that costs us nothing. In this movie, we saw a clip from Walk the Line. It's this picture of Johnny Cash and his band auditioning before a particular record label. And the guy stops them halfway through this tried old gospel song. 
and he says to them, have you, you, know, have you got anything else? And he says, I, 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 can't, I can't sell this kind of stuff. I've heard this song over and over and over again. And he challenges Johnny Cash with these words. He says, if you were lying in a gutter and you had just one song that you could sing to let God know how you felt about your time on this earth, would it be that same old gospel tune that you churn out, same old peace within and I'm going to shout about it, or would it be something different? Would it be something real? Would it be something that you actually feel? Because that is the kind of song that truly saves people. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.